right. How about looking at the Bible for a little while? Mm. We're turning to John's Gospel. John chapter 10. How about that? I'm going to be covering a lot of ground today because um, this is really an important section, leading to an important section, and I want to get it kind of Look back a little bit and running start. Okay, so we're in John chapter 10. And this section today, starting at verse 22, is actually the, the last of these conversations that Jesus has with his religious opponents in Jerusalem right before the Passion Week comes up. Okay, so these contentious conversations, we've looked at multiple ones. It really started in chapter 5. So that's how long we've been doing this in, in a feast that we don't know which feast it was. But John tells us the Jewish leadership in chapter 5 verse 16 were persecuting Jesus. And then in 518 it says they were seeking to kill him. Okay so that's been going on. Why were they doing that? Because he was calling God his own father making himself equal with God. That's what the text says. And Jesus replies to that in verse 22 of chapter 5 saying my father has given all judgment to the son. So that all will honor the son even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And that amazing statement doesn't calm things down. Equal honor to the son. Things get more intense after that. Then in chapter 7 Jesus comes late to the feast of tabernacles. And there in chapter 8 he declares publicly I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. That's 8.12. And the reaction to that? Jesus is demonic. <laughs> and of course at the end of chapter 8 Jesus sets before them the, he uses the, the great I am name when he says, chapter 8.58, before Abraham was born I am. And how do they respond to that? They pick up rocks to throw at him. They're going to try to kill him. And he somehow escapes. Chapter 9 of course as we discussed very recently. Is the healing of the man born blind. And the Pharisees reaction to that. Is that Jesus could not possibly be from God. Because he made a little bit of clay. And put it on the man's eyes. And that meant he was working on the Sabbath. So he couldn't be from God. Because he's a Sabbath breaker according to them. So um, chapter 10 then. Jesus starts this conversation about shepherds. And the Pharisees were awful shepherds. That's what he was saying. The religious leaders of Israel had utterly failed to properly shepherd their people. Not caring for them. Not caring for the sheep. And Jesus says in verse 11 of chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And the official response to that is. Jesus is demonic. (laughs) Last time we ended at verses 19 through 21 so let me read that for you a division occurred again among the Jews because of these words many of them were saying he has a demon and he is insane why do you listen to him others were saying well these are not the sayings of a demon possessed person a demon cannot open the eyes of the blind can he really good question there (laughs) so we aren't told which feast that was that took place but it, it might connect back to tabernacles the earlier feast or that section of the gospel might be looking forward to verse 22 which is where we're starting today and that is specifically identified as the feast of dedication 
And so John makes that really clear. So verse 22, chapter 10, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the great temple that Herod built had these huge colonnaded you know, porticos that people would meet under. And in the winter, probably you would want to be kind of in there to protect yourself from the cold wind. Israel is very much like California. So if you know what our winter is like, it's pretty similar over there. So um, the Feast of Dedication is not a biblical feast. That's what we call Hanukkah uh, today that takes place around Christmas time, right? And again, it's not a biblically commanded feast. It was a celebration um, after the Old Testament was done of the events that had happened under the Maccabean Revolution. They rebelled against their overlords and established an Israel state for a brief period of time and there's a miracle that was accompanied with that that's famous in Jewish lore. It happened in 164 BC. So it's celebrating that feast but it's not a biblical feast. So and that's why John tells us this is winter, um, December probably. And we're only, the reason he's telling us these time frames is because we're just a very short time, three months maybe until Passover. And that's where Jesus as the Lamb of God is going to lay down his life for his sheep. So all of that's coming soon. Suffering is coming soon. Jesus must take our sin upon himself as the Lamb of God. And after this conversation then that we're going to look at today in chapter 11, we have the final sign. So we said John's, the first half of John's gospel is built around seven signs. And those are the, that's his word for miracles. Signs are miracles. And the last and the seventh one is coming in chapter 11. And that is the most amazing miracle yet. So he's building us up to that. He's driving it home um, who Jesus is through this final Q&A that Jesus has with the Pharisees and his opponents here. So this is the last of these big conversations between Jesus and his opponents that we're looking at. And that's going to lead into chapter 11. So. First he sets the scene. Jesus is walking in the temple under one of the sheltered porticos and he's quickly surrounded by Jewish authorities. And he makes a point of using a word that really describes being encircled or surrounded by. Okay, so um, they're, they're stopping him. They're not just calling out to him, hey, we want to talk to you. They're gathered all around him. So uh, just picture that in your mind. And it's kind of hard to see in English how dramatic this is, the way it's written in Greek. In Greek, you know, it doesn't matter where words are in the sentence. um, Their their grammatical position is based on the word endings, not where they appear. So you can take the main verb and stick it at the front of the sentence to give kind of a dramatic effect. And he does that twice right here. So in, in Greek, you move the main verb up to emphasize something. So in verse 23, it's the word walking is in the first position. So walking, Jesus was in the temple. So it says that. So you get this picture right away. It's an instant image in your head. Walking, Jesus is in the temple. So he's walking along. And then verse 24 starts with the word surrounded or encircled. Um, My Bible says they gathered around him. Well, this isn't like a friendly gathering. He's definitely giving you the impression that they're surrounding him. They are um, forcing the issue. In other words, this is a showdown. That's why this is the final conversation John's going to give between Jesus and his enemies. So um, he was encircled. So it would read like this in Greek. Encircled therefore him the Jews. Surrounded therefore him the Jews. He's surrounded. Okay. So it's not a simple approach. Verse 24. They say this. How long will you keep us in suspense? 
If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah. Is that who you are? Are you claiming to be the Messiah? And you know, Jesus doesn't use the word Messiah of himself or Christ. That's the same word. Greek is the Christ. In all these discussions we've seen, he never once uses that word about himself. He's done, said a lot of amazing things, but not that. Um, he made much greater claims about himself. But Messiah is a kingly title that has political connotations to it. It's politically dangerous for him to call himself the Messiah. If, if Jesus claimed to be the Messiah openly, his re- religious enemies could snatch him up right there, take him before Pontius Pilate or the Roman people and say, this guy is a, re- a rebel. And they would have taken him out right then. So he doesn't ever use that word publicly about himself. Um, he doesn't use that language ever publicly about himself. And John, let me just kind of back you up a little bit. Here's the uses of the word Messiah in John's gospel and then in some of the other gospels. And it's always private. So in John chapter 1 verse 41, Andrew tells Peter in a private conversation, we have found the Messiah. Okay, so that's where it starts. And in chapter 4 when Jesus is talking with the woman at the well, is that a public conversation or a private conversation? Private, right. So we have, we have that, she brings up the Messiah and Jesus says in 425, well she says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, when that one comes he will declare to us in all things. And remember what Jesus tells her? I who speak to you am he. So he, he acknowledges that he's the Messiah but in a private conversation. So Matthew's gospel we see that same thing the private revelation of Jesus as the Messiah so you remember when Jesus is with his disciples and he says who do the people say that I am and they throw out all these options and then he says who do you say that I am and what does Peter say he gives his great declaration right you are the Christ the son of the living God right Matthew 16 16 and in verse 20 it says Jesus warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ Peter, the Lord told you who I am. He revealed that to you. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) That's what happens there. So the reason is really simple. Again, it's because Messiah has these political connotations to it. So Jesus doesn't use it, even though he is the Messiah. And he knows it. And he's willing to acknowledge that in certain circumstances. So he will not reveal himself as the Messiah until the Passion Week, AD 33, Passover, when he rides the donkey in fulfillment of prophecy into, into the city of Jerusalem and presents himself as the Messiah. And when he does that, he's declaring he's the Messiah. And that's when the crowds are cheering, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's Luke 19.38. And then Mark 11.10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. He's the Davidic king. And remember what the Pharisees say, tell your people to stop saying that. (laughs) And what does he say? He says, if these are quiet, the stones will cry out. It's so true that that's who I am, that if nobody says anything, God will make the stones cry out. Hosanna, the, the the, the king, the son of David has come. So he's definitely presenting himself as the Messiah on that day. That's still future from where we are in John's gospel. Not too far future but it's a little bit away, okay? So that will be the time for Jesus to reveal himself as the Messiah. In fact, when um, nothing will stop the proclamation 
of his messiahship on that day. But our story is here and now, so um, there is speculation about him being the Messiah, and that's why they're asking. So John chapter 7, verse 31, it says, many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? So the miracles are showing the average person that this is probably the Messiah, at least a lot of people think so, and they're asking that question openly. Many people thought he might be the Messiah, but he doesn't say it openly. But here his enemies want to trip him up and give them a basis and a reason where they can grab him and turn him over to Rome. And that's why they're asking this question. So they surround Jesus. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And his answer is really interesting. Verse 25. I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name. These testify of me. So he says I told you. Now let's think way back. John chapter 2. The first thing Jesus does. After he comes back from being. Um, tempted by the devil, spends 40, 40 days and nights fasting. He comes back and sees John the Baptist. Then he goes straight to the temple and sets it in order, right? You remember that? He kicks out the uh, money changers and he says, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And he called the temple his father's house. He did that on day one of his public ministry. Called the temple his father's house. So that's kind of a hint about who he is, although he doesn't use the word Messiah there. And then uh, more recently, you know, Jesus told him, I am the good shepherd. He said, I am the light of the world. We've looked at that recently. Regular folks don't say, I'm the light of the world. That's just not something, you're, even prophets don't say anything like that. Moses never said anything like that. Jesus has told them in every way except saying, I'm the Messiah, that he's the Messiah. So he's kind of putting that before them. And no, Jesus didn't knock off Rome or anything like they thought Messiah would, but he did heal the blind, the deaf, the invalid, the leper. He healed lepers. Every kind of disease and affliction known to man, he healed. And those are the signs. Those are some of the signs. So the evidence, that the testimony to Jesus is in his works. That's what he says. Look at my works. It's been there all along. The signs at the very least point to Jesus as a man approved and sent by God. And that's why when Nicodemus came to him, he says, we know that you're from God because of these things that you do. We can tell. But the, the hatred is so great against him that they won't acknowledge it, right? But some people could see it and they knew and they understood. So they talked about him as the Messiah. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 22, it shows us that these people... It's, it says that people were kicked out of the synagogue, excommunicated, if they said that he was the Messiah. That's how serious that is. So um, they were totally punishing people, actually punishing people, the religious authorities for saying that. The heavy hand of Jesus' enemies shows us that some people did understand it and they were being kicked out for that. So if these religious leaders were seeking God, they would know who Jesus is. That's what he's saying there. And the reason they don't get it is really clear from chapter 10, verse 26. But you do not believe, he's telling these guys that surrounded him, 
you do not believe because, now there's reason, you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So he gives the reason they don't believe explicitly, you are not of my sheep, my sheep hear my voice. Those are amazing words. You don't believe because you're not one of my sheep. And the obvious question from that is, well, how do you become a sheep if you can't believe unless you are one? I mean, he's saying that the sheep believe. They know, they recognize him and they believe. So the answer to that, how do you become a sheep if you can't believe unless you are one, is that God sovereignly has called people unto himself. That's what we were reading in Romans chapter 8 earlier. The answer is all through scripture and the answer is that God's electing grace, his choosing, setting his love on people. God changes the hearts of people. That's the fulfillment of the old covenant promise of the new covenant is that God will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He does that. He says, I will do that. And then you believe. We've seen that over and over again in scripture. So we talked about that a lot in John chapter 6 because Jesus himself made it really clear. We're all sinners by nature and we're sinners by choice and we deserve condemnation. Unbelief is the the default position of humanity. We're born that way. We grow up that way. We have to hear. We all start there in life in unbelief. And nobody, nobody begins as a sheep. You begin as a goat, if you will. We all need new hearts. But God, oh my goodness, the revealing of God's love in in wondrous glory is that he saves millions and millions of people by giving them a new heart. He softens their heart. And then they receive the call of God to believe and they put their faith in Jesus. John chapter 6 verse 36. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And then he says this, John 6 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So those given to the Son by the Father are the ones who come to him. He could not be more clear than that. People the Father gives to the Son are his sheep. And so when he comes, they hear his voice and they follow because of the the Father's calling, the Father's work. John 6, 39, Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So none, none who are given to the Son by the Father will be lost. None. He'll raise them up on the last day. One more verse, chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me, no one can, has the ability to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So there again, you've got God's wonderful, electing, loving grace to people. 
that he's chosen. So the father gives certain people to the son. These same people are drawn to the son by the father. So he chooses and he draws who he chooses. And remember we, we talked about that in chapter 6. Draw is a really strong word. It's not like hey come over here. It means it's literally used like drag. That's the what that Greek word means. Pulled all, irresistibly pulled in you know. So it's a powerful powerful word. So what God actually does is open the heart to see the excellence of Jesus and we are irresistibly drawn to him. And that's all described in Ezekiel chapter 36 where God takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. And he says, I will cause you, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Because human beings won't do it without God's grace. They won't do it without God acting upon us. So he does do that. The father gives, the father draws, and all of those who he gives to the son will be raised up on the last day. None will be lost. That's the promise we have in Christ. If you believe you are drawn, called, elect, sealed, and you're going to make it. So back to John 10. Told you I'd jump around a lot. (laughs) Here's where the same ideas appear in different language, but the same ideas. And I want you to see how secure, how secure the sheep are in Christ. Okay, that's what we're looking at now. So chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So this is the promise. They will never perish. It's impossible for one of Christ's sheep to perish. It cannot happen. The sheep don't have to fear being lost ever. We're in the Savior's hands. Safe hands, right? Do you think anybody can pry open the fingers of Jesus if he doesn't want to have his hand open? No, nobody can. Forget about it as they say. The one who made the universe holds you in his hand if you're his sheep. You can't jump out, you can't squirm out, and nobody can snatch you away. If you're Jesus' sheep, you are secure in him. Nothing can break that security, nothing. Not the cruelty of persecutors or any false teachers or false prophets, and there's a lot of those running around. Or even Satan himself doesn't have the power to break the hold that Jesus has on his sheep. Satan can pour out on you all of his hellish energy and all of his schemes and he will hold you. He will hold you. You, He cannot get through that. He cannot snatch you from God's hands. Now, did you notice verse 30? Jesus drops a rather Trinitarian bombshell here. I and the Father are one. I've got you in my hand. The Father's got you in his hand. The Father and I are one. Can you think of any great saint saying something like that? Can you, think, can you picture Abraham saying, I and the Father are one? No, he wouldn't say that. Would Moses say that? Would, anybody, would Daniel say that? Would David say that? No. So the immediate subject here is power, the power to keep sheep from being lost. That's the main idea, the power to save and to preserve The son has the same power in this as the father. That's what he's saying. If that doesn't 
outright say it, it certainly suggests equality of the Son and the Father, which is what it said in chapter 5. We need to honor the Son even as we honor the Father. Even as is that word equal. It means equal. Equal honors to the Son. So there's a Trinitarian thread here. Uh, there's two persons, I, Jesus, and the Father are one. Just like the very first verse in the gospel, right? How does John start his gospel again? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's the same idea. Two persons, one God. That's the Trinitarian idea. Both persons exercise sovereign power. The Son's hand holds us, the Father's hand holds us. Now it's statements like this, saying things like this, the Father and I are one, that can get you killed. And that's exactly what they want to do. So take note of the physical action on the part of the religious leaders when they hear Jesus say, I and the Father are one. What do they, what physical thing do they do? They start bending down, but they're not worshiping. That's what they should be doing when they realize that the Son and the Father are one. They should worship the Son, give honor to the Son, right? But they're picking something up off the ground. What would that be? We've seen them do it before. Yeah, it's rocks. They're picking up rocks. So when the priests and rabbis begin to pick up rocks, it means you're probably not even going to get a trial. (laughs) Right? They're not picking up handcuffs to take you away. They're picking up rocks to stone you with, right? So it's a violent, emotional reaction to what they think is blasphemy. And in this case, it's already fueled by a hatred and malice on their part towards Jesus for exposing their sins and religious zealotry. It's all blending together to kill him, the desire to kill him. And they do do this sometimes. You know, in the book of Acts, they stoned Stephen to death. They just grabbed him, took him somewhere, and stunned him to death. Even though that was illegal, they did it because they were so furious. And that's exactly what's starting to happen here. Jesus is a blasphemer. The law of Moses demands that his death. And that happened in chapter 8 when Jesus said the I am thing before Abraham was born. I am, chapter 8, 58. They picked up stones to throw at him, right? But he escaped from that. So they are correct that the law demands the death of a blasphemer. That is true. But it's not blasphemy if you're God. If Jesus is who he says he is, it's not blasphemy at all. And that's why Jesus keeps pointing them, who are so thick-headed, to the miracles. Who's doing these miracles? All I'm doing is good. You can't point to one bad thing I've done. All I've done is good, and good that is miraculous, that's impossible. And you're concluding that um, you're picking up rocks for that. Every miracle he did blessed people. They weren't tricks. He's not a TV preacher. These are truly permanently healed people. Healed by him. And these religious leaders are not neutral careful observers. They're not being honest. They hate him. They are motivated by hatred. And hate blinds them to an obvious truth. That he's he's at least from God. And if he says he and the father are one. Then that's got to be true. But they go for the rocks. Now I suspect this time it's a little bit slower action. They're probably just starting to collect ammo. (laughs) Because Jesus does have a chance to speak here and he asks a question, verse 32, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? 
It's just a good, healthy way to remind them of why are you doing what you're doing? It's a typical Jesus question. He kind of puts it back on you. He's, he's master, the master question asker. And, um, and he brings up good works again, right? That these are good. So these are all good works. So which good work are you stoning me for exactly? Things that only God can do. For which of them are you stoning me? Perfect question. Here's the answer. Just like in the end of chapter 8. The Jews answered him, verse 33, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They're right about that. They're right about that. Except it's not blasphemy. Because he is God. And it's not yet time for Jesus to die. He has to die on Passover because he's the Passover lamb. And that's still a few months away. So Jesus uses a little, a little verbal judo here. <laughs> okay? He neither affirms nor denies that he is God in plain language. He asks a question, a question that's suitable for educated men in the scriptures, and, which they are. And he's going to point them then, after he kind of does a little turn on them, he's going to point them right back to the evidence, which are the miracles again, the signs, the, the absolute clear signs of who he is, the actual evidence. So he's going to affirm again after that then, using his own words, that he is God. So watch how he does this. He, so he slows things down by quoting scripture to them. So verse 34, Jesus answered, has it not been written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world you are blaspheming? Because I said I am the son of God. So what's he doing here? He's quoting Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is God is condemning the corrupt rulers of Israel. And you know what God calls them? He calls them gods. This is Psalm 82 verse 5. They do not know nor they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods and all of you are sons of the most high. Nevertheless you will die like men and fall like every one of the princes. So God's blasting these rotten leaders of Israel and he says I called you gods. Now what does that mean? Well, before I get to that, notice verse 35 where Jesus affirms the complete authority of Scripture. The Scripture cannot be broken. If you've ever talked to people about the Bible and Jesus Christ, and you've got to remember that that's there in John 10 because Jesus said the Scripture cannot be broken. He affirmed everything in the Bible as being true. So there's lots of people today that like to say, well, I like Jesus, I just hate the Bible. But um, he loved the Bible and he believed that the Bible was absolutely, completely authoritative in all things. Just to let you know that. That's Jesus' view of the Bible, okay? Don't forget that. All right, now, what does, what does God call these judges of Israel? He calls them Elohim, which is the word for God, or gods, it's a plural word actually, but it's always used, uh, singular or plural, of God. Why does he call them that? Because they were his representatives to the people. He, they had his word. And they were to give his word out. And live, by, live out his word for the people. It's just like when God sent Moses. To Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 7 verse 1. God, God tells Moses. He says. I make you as God to Pharaoh. And Aaron your brother is your prophet. Now did Moses turn into a God? No. 
but he's God's voice, right? He's speaking God's truth. So God's giving him what to say. So the God calls these judges of Israel Elohim, gods, because they were to represent God to the people. So now, they should know the scripture. They should know Psalm 82. And it shouldn't be controversial then when Jesus, and Jesus now here says in verse 36, he says, I am sanctified and I was set apart and sent into the world by, by God, by the Father. And so if I call myself the Son of God, that's totally appropriate. So those judges of Israel were called gods and only, only because they had the word of God, they spoke the word of God on his behalf or they were supposed to. Jesus actually is sent directly by the Father. He's not just some guy. So now Jesus has him, them thinking, okay, yeah, he pulled the Psalm 82 one on us. That, that, that's kind of a good argument there. What are we? So they're thinking about that, and now he's going to take them while they're doing that. That's the judo part. He's going to take them doing that while they're thinking and point them again back to the absolute clear signs that he has to be from God because of the works that he does. Okay, so that's where this is all going. So verse 37. If I... D- if I do not do the works of my father, then don't believe me. If I'm not doing what the father wants me to do, then don't believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works. Believe the works. Okay, you hate me. But you got to deal with the, the works and all the works are good. There's only good coming out of me. His teaching is good. Everything he lived, the way he lives his life is, is good. He didn't break the Sabbath by making a little bit of clay. That wasn't a Sabbath violation. <laughs> it was a human rule violation. He says, I haven't done anything ever wrong. But if you, don't, if you don't believe me, believe the works. That's why God sends those works. So you can know for sure. Believe the works. If I don't do the works, don't believe me. If I do them, believe. So make it as simple as he possibly can for them. And then the final statement, this is, what, this is where he takes them full, full circle now. We're back to him being God again. Verse 38. Believe the works so that you may know and understand what? That the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Okay, he didn't flat out say I'm God, but now he's back to the Father and I are one idea, right? So the works are so that you can know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. That's pretty much saying I and the Father are one again. And that's how they take it. Verse 39, therefore they were seeking again to seize him and he eluded their grasp. It doesn't tell us how he did it, but Jesus can do anything. But um, we aren't given details. We aren't actually given details about when they decided to go ahead and go after Jesus. They might have stopped and talked about it for a minute and he got away. It doesn't tell us anything about that. But it's not his time. As it often says in John's gospel, it was not his hour. His hour is coming, but it hasn't happened yet. So he gets away. Now, just to close out this chapter, John gives a little brief historical note. And he's, if you're reading through the gospel, you haven't heard about John the Baptist much for a while, so he's going to reconnect the reader's mind to John the Baptist, who was the greatest prophet of his generation. Really the only real prophet of his generation. So verse 40, he went away again beyond the Jordan to a place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. So Jesus leaves Jerusalem, crosses the Jordan River, he's staying on the other side of the Jordan, and that's the very spot where John the Baptist started his ministry in proclaiming Christ. Verse 41, many came to him and were saying, 
While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. So John the author wants us to remember that John the Baptist's power was in his words. He was a prophet, right? John did no miracles. John the Baptist did no miracles. But Jesus does a gazillion miracles. But John was known by his preaching and by his character, his godly example. So what John the author calls signs were not something that John did, but that's what Jesus did. So the people that knew about John that were from that place, when they see what Jesus does, they don't hate him already. So they get it and they believe. Many of them it says believed. So verse um, Chapter 1 verse 29 when John the Baptist said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's, that's the kind of thing he was saying about Jesus. So when they say the things that John said about this man are true. And those are the kinds of things he said about Jesus right. In fact in John chapter 3 verse 28 John the Baptist actually identifies Jesus as the Christ. Because he says they say are you the Christ and he says no I'm preparing his way. And then when John pointed to Jesus, that's the, he was identifying Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. And verse 42 here, many believed in him there. So it all kind of comes back around again. In contrast then to the self-righteous, hateful leadership of Israel and Jerusalem, regular people were still putting their faith in Jesus. And in this particular place it says many, many believed. So now as John is relating his story of Jesus throughout his gospel. We come to the sign of signs if you will in chapter 11. The seventh sign. There's always seven in John's things. And the seventh one is the top, top of them all. So one of the greatest events of all time in the gospel accounts. John chapter 11. Great on so many levels. The most hard hitting proclamation yet on Jesus as the source of eternal life he's been building the whole gospel up to this very moment and we'll look at that <laughs> next next week okay <laughs> all right I got to change my routine <laughs> let's let's pray father we're so thankful for the greatness of our Lord Jesus and how wise he was and how good he was in all ways because he was the word become flesh dwelt among us full of grace and truth and he showed it in so many different ways and father we rejoice in the security that we have as your sheep those who have heard your voice and follow and we put our faith in you and as weak as we are sometimes and as stumbling sometimes we're stumbling sheep and we wander a little bit and uh, but we are secure in you if our faith is real and we just pray Lord that you would Call many, many people to yourself and make them your sheep as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.